Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Viktor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Thomas uh, Sedlacek, the author of The Economics of Good and Evil, international bestseller, and one of Europe's leading young economists. Thomas, are you still young? Um, I just turned 42. I mean, this is a midway of my 42. 42 is my favorite number because it's the answer to the meaning of life, universe, and everything. So I think I'm just beginning. But I, I get, I need more sleep than I used to when I was 22. But when someone gets tagged as sort of a, as a young economist, that lasts with them throughout their life, doesn't it? Yeah, the young will go away one point, and let's see what happens to the economist part. I'm interested in the relationship between economics and democracy. As an economist, put on your economist's hat if you can, how do economists define democracy? Well, we do not so much care about democracy in our theories. You just got me started on an extremely interesting topic because at core, hardcore libertarian economics is actually a sort of a totalitarian system. The free will there is, isn't even counted in you sort of you can calculate what you're going to consume and what you're going to work so there's no free will in economics so there's actually ironically in one extreme there is no free will exactly as the extremes meet with with communism and are you suggesting then that free will is essential to democracy that that is the defining quality of democracy that's the two things that uh if, as an economist if you ask me about democracy the first thing that sort of connects m in my brain is is the is the common denominator of of freedom so all other models, we have this freedom as an essential part that the human beings can decide free, freely. But, but um, freedom doesn't really enter the equation. Where, where we uh, economists need or use democracy is this belief that I was taught, I believe you were taught the same, that democracies and market capitalism go, go hand in hand. Our system is called market uh, democracy. It's also interesting that the word market comes first, market democracy also democratic capitalism, but market democracy means that markets are almost as important as democracies. And now these two systems have divorced from each other, especially in the countries such as China. Now, when you look at West, this is the 30 years since the revolution, the West has exported two things, market and democracy. Now, when you actually do the accounting 30 years or later, I think West has managed very, very well when it comes to the export of free markets. Basically, there is no competing model with that. But when it comes to the export of democracy, uh, we have not done so well. 
In, in fact, this is the only region where both of those caught and, and actually worked. So Central Europe, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Slovenia, and other countries are countries which have imported both democracy and capitalism, not China uh, and the Russian style of cap capitalism and the Russian style of democracy is slightly different from um, our ideals. Thomas, you brought up 1989. Is this the year you think where we can begin to make sense of this complicated and sometimes rather traumatic relationship between free market capitalism and democracy? Yeah, it's definitely uh, uh, one of the most important stones along the path because this was the year where the end of history happened. And of course, Fukuyama... An American idea. Yeah, Fukuyama's idea, uh, which was uh, ridiculed quite a lot during the period. But 30 years down the line, uh, we have had a couple of very, very severe economic crises in which the left especially was completely free to come up with a new way of, of, of doing human relations between each other. And nobody really came up with anything uh, dramatically new. Back in 89, no one expected that the free market could undermine democracy. Is that fair? Uh, I wouldn't say that the free market undermines democracy. I mean, there's different type of democracy in the market. In the market, I decide who survives and who doesn't by, by, by giving him or her money or not. In democracy, I, uh, I, I use that a little bit differently. I, use my, I have one voice. And if I make a mistake, uh, I get a new voice four years later. Whereas in, in markets, if you are unsuccessful, your amount of money or your voting power sort of decreases. So there's no beginning again in economics? Uh, no, it's like a game of Monopoly that you just play once in your... Or the extreme version would be one game of Monopoly that you pay, play at the age of 18. And then according to the results, one of them is a monopolist and the others will be serving him from some ridiculous amount of, of money. Whereas in democracy, you sort of reset that every four years. You sort of put the money back in the box and you shake the, uh, the cube. As an economist, would you date the foundations of this globalized economy from 1989? No, no. Um, the world has been connecting since, since time immemorial. It's just now coming to the culmination point where, where markets or companies are more connected than, than governments. Co companies today, this is what Facebook started with a um, couple of weeks back or months back with their uh, Lira currency. It seems that uh, business people are now finally copying the trick of unification from politicians because we've tried always uniting politically here in Europe and, and elsewhere, but mainly here in Europe. And um, one single country can attack one country, uh, one company such as Google or Facebook or Uber or Airbnb. But just imagine all these companies get together in a union. So if you want to ban something from Airbnb, Facebook says, okay, I'm banning access to your, to your people on Facebook. So only this year, it seems that um, the international unification has ceased to be the monopoly of political uh, nations, but companies are starting to do the same, which is something that's quite unprecedented. Let me revise the question slightly then. You know, in, as a Central European, as well as anyone, the, the nature of the rise of this new kind of populism in Hungary, perhaps in the Czech Republic, certainly in Poland, in, in Russia. What's the relationship between the rise of this, whatever you want to call it, populism, neo-authoritarianism, 
anti-democratic movement, and the forces, the economic forces of globalization. So it's, uh, it's, it's a tough thing to explain, uh, because economically speaking, uh, these nationalist and populist movements should have been more, most vocal during the deepest times of the crisis. That's the explanation that many... You mean in 2008, 2009? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's where you should see a rise of populism. That's when you should be afraid of losing your, your, your jobs and, and, and things like that. And that didn't actually, that didn't actually happen. Even, um, uh, even an extreme example of, of Greece, um, uh, Syriza came to power after uh, a couple of years of the worst. So it seems that we were actually able to buckle up and be quite reasonable, if I may use the word reasonable, against a populist wave. And the populism is coming in the aftermath. We have record levels of low levels of unemployment, not only in Czech Republic, but also globally. This planet has never had such a beautiful time when it comes to unemployment. And all the biggest worries seem to have uh, been gone. So I think you can also see this in, in the United States with, with Donald Trump. You can also see it in the United Kingdom. I interpret it not as a uh, European or Central European phenomenon. I interpret it as a sort of a tiredness, uh, tired of the sun, tired of being the good guy. Bored. Uh, bored of being the good guy without even being the good guy. I think this is the American feeling that they now want a bully to be representing them. So, so what you're suggesting is a kind of a, a, a top villain analysis of this neo-authoritarian revolution that people become radical when things get better. People become radical when they lose meaning. Uh, and I think this is what's happening to uh, the liberal uh, sort of idea that we grew up. Uh, this ideal is no longer appealing. There isn't really new philosopher on the horizon. There isn't a new politician. I think the last politician who had a little bit of a vision maybe was Tony Blair with the third way. And that wasn't much of a new vision, but at least it was something. Um, you can't really compare Angela Merkel's zest for European Union or for some greater idea. Well, it doesn't seem to be anything zestful about Angela Merkel. Does there it? you are. Yeah, but she would be the most European leader Can today. Can we blame your profession, Thomas, for this, for the the dominance of economics, of rationality, and the crisis of democratic politics and leadership? No, I think we can, um, we should, I mean, economic, my field comes in and backs up when other things sort of, um, uh, no, let me, let, me, let me put it this way. Um, also in economics, we've had not anything new. There hasn't been no new Keynes, no new Milton Friedman, no Hayek, no von Mises, uh, no Schumpeter, not really anything greatly um, uh, gravitational or attractive. You can see there's also maybe, maybe a little bit in music. I mean, we're here at a music festival and the music is beautiful and everything, but it's basically nichts Neues unter der Sonne. Everything, Thomas, except one thing. What has changed since 89? You're right about music, you're right about politics, you're right about economics, but there's been one profound change. Digital technology, right. And that's, that, I think, is a nice angle. There is nothing, the, our way of coping with things, which is, for example, some new form of philosophy. Uh, so, I know, I grew up when hippies were still a little bit, you know, and when I was young, we got anarchists and, and communists and, 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 you know, whatnot, punk and hippie. And they were all, they had a zest, uh, we use the word. Today, we have hipsters. And I think that's a nice sort of... You look a little like a hipster. 
Everybody looks a little like a hipster. A, a Finnish hipster. A finished hipster. Finnish Czech hipster. Yeah, and, and hipster doesn't have a great ideal. I mean, hipster is, uh, you know, floating near the mainstream. He doesn't like it or she, but, but, but that's where he or she feels comfortable. And you can also see this in politics. There's really nothing new. So I, I blame um, post-modernity. When I was young, it looked good that we will reset all values and we have the clean table and we, we get to calibrate the, the compass again. But it's lasted for too long. It's lasted for 30 years. Isn't it hasn't that rather really... too easy, though, to blame the French postmodernists? They've become the sort of the punch bag, both of left and right. No, I don't blame them. It's just they've started something that we that that nobody finished. I think even they, in the beginning, imagined that they will, you know, sort of. You mean the disappearance of truth? The dis deconstruction of uh, philosophy itself. How has that changed your business as an as as an economist or? Uh, somebody else's business as a political philosopher. Well, if you have no big aim uh, to aim for, uh, economics is things that people revert to. That's what I meant. The economy is a sort of a, you know, revert to, revert to business. In times of peace, we should trade with each other. That's absolutely fine, but we shouldn't only trade with each other. So, um, uh, so this economics has become the guidelight for many. GDP growth is sort of the, um, uh, the remaining, um, absolute. Yes, the, the fetish which no longer works, but like Gollum in the Lord of the Rings, he loves the ring, he keeps touching it, but he doesn't use its powers anymore. He doesn't do any magic with it. He doesn't hunt with it. He doesn't use the invisibility. He just wants to be fascinated by it. And this is something that I think remained of wealth. Also here, back in uh, 30 years ago, we thought that wealth is going to make us happy. Wealth is going to make us satisfied. Wealth is going to make us European, make us Europeans. 30 years down the line, we have everything. Our shop and, and streets look exactly the same like they do anywhere in, 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 in Europe. And yet, this meaning is something that uh, we still complain about. Actually, if you have a look at the World Happiness Report, Chinese, and if there is one place where capitalism really has elevated poverty, it's, it's China. Yet there, people feel less happy than they felt in 1988. That means uh, one year before the, before the wall started coming down. I think some people, uh, Thomas, might disagree with, with, with your argument that we're much more prosperous now. We may be more prosperous in quantitative terms, but we don't feel more prosperous. Yeah. And the gap between the very wealthy and people without money is growing enormously. We have more and more multi billionaires, certainly in Silicon Valley. So how would you respond to the argument that it's the, and, and I'm quoting here, and I'd like you to get actually a definition as an economist of what neoliberalism means, but how would you respond to the argument that the problem with the world today is the neoliberal economy or neoliberal economics, which is creating more and more of a gulf between everybody and a tiny group of global elites. Well, that's not completely true. If you look at uh, the, uh, what happened to our wealth 30 years, there's, we, it's, it's been called in literature um, elephant graph, um, where you see uh, changes in ownership in the last 30 years. So it's true, here would be the richest people, here would be the poorest people. What happened is that the most poor people in this planet elevated from poverty tremendously. There's been a shift this plan has never seen a shift like that. 1870, 1870s, 94% of people lived in poverty, meaning they, won't, they don't know what 
no, not what, but if they're going to eat the next day. Today, it's around 9% of people living in such extreme conditions. And also, um, uh, there, are, there, there is a group of people that lost. This would be the American sort of uh, blue-collar workers. The so-called middle class. Yeah, well, yeah, the, uh, the uh, up, uh, upper low class, I would say. But that's also true in Europe. It's perhaps true in Australia. In, it's in, true in eastern parts of Germany. It's no, true not, in northern England. Not in England, not in Europe. Actually, in Europe, the, the scissors are coming down. The, the American system, the scissors, you're absolutely right, they're the scissors. And especially, by the way, in Russia. Russia is the only place, everywhere else in the world, rich gained a lot, but the median population also uh, became uh, much more affluent. Uh, with the only exception of Russia, where the top 0.01% uh, are thousand more, thousand times more richer, uh, more rich than they were 30 years ago. And the main bulk, the medium of the pop populace, actually got poorer than it was. But otherwise, everywhere in the world, even the poor are, are, are being elevated from poverty, which is the most important thing for me. So is the word neoliberalism useless? Is it a word that simply reflects your political agenda? Should we discard it? Does it have any meaning? Well, it's also interesting to compare what liberal means in European context and what it means in, in an American context. You know, a European liberal is much more, um, yeah, let's say, uh, European right is left of even American left. But the word neoliberalism is used in economic terms yeah. to define a certain kind of global economy, uh, a certain, in people's mind at least, absolute free market globalized economy. Is it a useful term? Does it mean anything? Well, it's, 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 it's politically quite useful. It, it is also quite con confusing because this was the birthplace of, of Donald Trump, the Tea Party. Uh, and he was a, a businessman who should be bowing to these principles. Uh, and yet he comes up with protectionism that ha has not, not been seen, um, especially not on the Republican side of, of, the, of the Atlantic. Uh, so it's a weird combination of, of it's actually what he is selling is, is protectionism. It isn't um, neoliberalism. And what's interesting about neoliberalism, let me just add one slightly interesting philosophical point that back in the days, in the 90s, we believed that the markets will save us. This was the, the, the mantra of neoliberalism. Lesser fair, lesser passer, let the markets do. Don't, do not um, meddle. The markets will find their best way. Today, I think we are choking off or breathing or sucking on a miniature caricature of that. It is no longer that markets will save us. It is business as a super subset of markets as a sort of a philosophical entity. So what I'm saying is that neoliberalism at least had a sort of a global worldview with which you could agree or not, but it had a concise ideology and philosophy, which was academically, let's say, defendable. This ideology that we have today, uh, and that's also Macron, those are politicians that are actually pretty close to my heart, but they also come from, uh, from, from this idea that business, not great ideology, not great visions. This is also Angela Merkel, also a politician that quite close to my heart. She doesn't have any, she doesn't have a vision. It's basically going down to, in case of Merkel, let's do this in sort of a bureaucratic way, in, curso, in, in case of um, Macron or Trump, or the Slovak president or other presidents that actually came from some quite popular business backgrounds, they, they're not offering any great ideology. They're just saying, well, let's do it in the business way. Let's somehow negotiate um, 
our way out of it. There is no politics, really. It's just negotiations of power. So what you're saying as an economist is that the key scarcity in the world today is the scarcity of meaning. That's right. The key scarcity of the day is the uh, scarcity of meaning. And there's a wonderful story now that we're talking about the most recent events. I just had a debate yesterday and I realized that this, this truth, that, you know, this thing that you just said is actually quite nicely demonstrable in the Garden of Eden story that we all have in our heritage. Adam and Eve had lived in a perfect economic paradise. They didn't have to work. They had no capital to oppress them, no money, no bosses, even no ethics, no religion. Uh, the, the, the garden was plentiful of fruit, yet they had to leave it because they wanted to look for meaning. They wanted to understand. They wanted, they, it wasn't that economic paradise was of no use to them. They left it for hell because they felt they have to go through it in order to find meaning. And what you're saying then is that this shift to populism, to neo-authoritarian, to neo-authoritarianism has been caused by this scarcity of meaning, that people are looking to the, the man on horseback, yes. nationalism, cultural identity, and above all else, nostalgia. Yeah. You can see that also in the music. Now that we're in a musical festival, it's hard to say that there's nothing new in music because one looks like an old person immediately after saying that. But you can say one thing quite objectively, there are no, no new musical instruments since the time of Beatles and the electrification of everything. And that changed the world of music tremendously. There is no new musical instrument in our lifetime, pretty much, with the exception of the mixing board. And that has now become uh, a musical instrument. And I think that's perfectly symbolizing the, the politics today. It gets old music, it remixes it slightly, and it uses that nostalgia. Speaking of music, what does democracy to you sound like? What is the music of democracy? The music of democracy? Uh, Midnight Oil. Yeah, because I grew up on it. it it's also, I, I had a quarrel with a friend of mine the other day, and I didn't know why can't we understand each other. He's a good friend of mine. We're close. And then I realized, well, he didn't listen to Midnight Oil when he was growing up. So I really do think that the, 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 the music that you listen to actually does influence you. That's what we have art. Artists want to influence as they look very and benign. So, and so to enrich democracy, we need to learn to listen again or to listen to each other's music? I, th I think we need to be able to combine rhythm and, and tunes together. And, and music is also an expression of a free human spirit. And music is not beautiful because it's random and, and chaotic and, and free. But music is considered free exactly because we have additional layer of rules. Um, and that, I think, is something that's in, important for us. Freedom isn't lack of rules. Language is another good example. Language is a set of rules that we both very uh, strictly obey. And I will not become freer if I start babbling away, ignoring the rules of grammar. I will, however, become more freedom if I add another layer of rules to language, such as poetry, or to poetry music. There are very, very strict rules in music. There are very, very strict rules in poetry. But through these strict rules, we are able to express our freedom better than without the rules. Your new book is about the, the psychoanalytics of economics. Uh, again, putting your economist hat back on, what, is, what do economists make of nostalgia? Or do you have to fall back on psychoanalysis to make sense of nostalgia? Uh, nostalgia is... Well, in terms of economics, we have had these neoclassics against this fight 
that you also mentioned has been going on for hundreds of years. And many economists, well, actually, basically any economic textbook that you read will, will quote back to, to Adam Smith. So nostalgia is a very important um, field for us. It is it, does, also... Does nostalgia have economic value? Yeah, it has a traditional value. So, it, if, if, uh, so the, whenever I engage in a battle with neoliberals or, or neoconservatives of whoever, both of us start with Keynes. Uh, sorry, not Keynes, with uh, Adam Smith. My argument is that Adam Smith actually meant it. He, he, they misunderstood. That was a Freudian slip, right? That was a Freudian slip, yeah. <laughs> that was actually Keynes' point, um, uh, Keynes point too. Uh, so nostalgia is, is extremely uh, important for us. From the psychoanalytic uh, analytic point of view, um, nostalgia is something that happens when um, the world order uh, becomes this undecipherable for you and you feel like you are in a chaos you have a psychological tendency to revert to the last functional order, even if that order wasn't actually functional, which is uh, one way how to read uh, the let's make America great again and the uh, nationalist tendencies in, in Europe. In other words, we're fighting, we're fighting, we should be fighting a war with digitalization because that really is the new thing or war. We should be actually dealing with digitalization. But just like in warfare, we have a tendency to fight with the last war's weapons. Yesterday's enemy. That's right. So today, I think instead of, you know, coming up together as mankind and dealing with digitalization, we are um, fighting nationalistic uh, ideas of the last century. So finally, Thomas, you said that the way to confront today's uh, shift towards authoritarianism is to address the scarcity of meaning. That's right. On the right, of course, that has been addressed through the reinvention of ethnicity and a nostalgia or for traditional a, Christianity yeah for a nostalgia for a world that yes most people would suggest never really existed how do progressives deal with this struggle for meaning you mentioned uh, hipsters uh, you know the hipsters in the United States in Brooklyn what they've done is retreat to their high-end beers and coffee lattes. and food in in Brooklyn New yeah. York how can we do it in a political sense? Where is the, the meaning in 21st century progressive politics? Uh, in my personal opinion, it is my great belief that um, very, very attractive uh, issue that would gravitate naturally attention is digitalization. It does that by itself. This thing gravitates me. I touch it more than I'd like but to. For or against digitalization? For digitalization, for, uh, treating it as a respectable partner something between a friend and an enemy like you approach some stranger entity that you haven't met before you don't attack it nor do you invite it completely to your home you sort of deal with it carefully we are treading here on a, on, on a place which which will which already changed mankind uh, in the last 10 years more than any revolution that we've had so that direction education and uh, and, and the search of meaning uh, and science these four things, um, uh, plus uh, the idea that it would be about time in the year 2019 and on that mankind stops behaving like a, like a trickster figure that doesn't understand that the left hand and the right hand are part of the same organism and start to think as, as mankind. So one of the ways how to save democracy is to stop viewing democracy as a national concept, but start slowly, not today, but in a couple of years, start thinking about democracy as a voting of mankind, not as Brits against Germans and French. You and were, um, you were a, when you were a college student, you were an economic advisor to Black Lab Havel. 
do we need to dig him up? Do we need a new Harvard in today's world where there's a crisis of democracy? I, th I think we need new people with vision. But where uh, are they going to come from? I mean, Harvard somehow captured the spirit of, of 89. Who can capture the spirit of 2019? I'm thinking artists and philosophers. I, we, always, we sort of have this hope that the world, that the Messiah, quote and unquote, somebody who will uh, sit on the horse and show us the direction, will come from the world of politics. And that doesn't happen very frequently. If you look at the history of, of our civilization, it has been mostly changed by different people, sometimes by politicians, but not, not as, a, as a rule. So I am expecting, I am sniffing, I am um, eagerly uh, awaiting someone from the world of philosophy, someone from the world of, of, of art and culture, maybe a, a poet, um, someone who will be able to direct in an attractive manner politics towards science, towards um, cooperation, towards uniting people, and um, uh, for us as mankind as whole to be able to uh, control the blessing that digitalization could be so that it doesn't turn into hell that it also could be. So perhaps another Harvell, given that he, his, his main career, uh, if he had a career, was as a playwright, as an artist. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't be uh, digging up Havel from his grave. Uh, I think there are some, some things that was really inspiring from him. Looking back to find future leaders is a, is a difficult task. But someone like that, someone who doesn't think of him or her primarily as um, uh, defined by the color of his skin or by the passport that he owns. Well, uh, we are lucky, actually, that these people, like Mark Zuckerberg, are actually at least trying to be nice guys. We are always also a world of politics. Last time we've dealt with Hitler's and the like of him, we've put checks and balances, so this will never, ever happen again. So politics is full of checks and balances. We're very careful there. We're also careful of political populism. But what about market populism? What if the next Hitler raises from the world of Google or businesses, as, as you, you know how easy it is? For Trump, who didn't have any digital nor impressive business, I mean, this, you know, he was a real estate magnate, there's nothing really sexy about that for the last 200 years, yet he was able to transition in, uh, in, in the most powerful position in a, in a fashion that nobody expected. So I would be quite careful about market populism and that uh, it could raise leaders that might not be so good. They might actually be mean people. They might be mean intending people. So far, we're lucky that we, we don't have them. This is yet another reason for, for mankind to come together and be able to uh, you know, balance uh, that uh, hunger for power, which very often you can see in business people. Now, we've got a real big favor that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you head over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode every Thursday. And from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day.